Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Well, thank you, Serena, and the worship team for leading us, both in the reading of Scripture, in announcements that connect us to the larger body of Christ that allow us to see the work of God and respond to Him, and in songs and music that help us to express things that are in our heart, but we don't have a language for it. So I'm just so grateful to come and do this work of preaching and teaching to a group of people whose hearts have already been prepared. During my many years as a pastor, a question that Sham would ask me regularly was, so are you, are you done for the day? And my answer is always no. There's always one more email to respond to, one more book to be read, one more administrative task to be ticked off from the to-do list. I woke up every morning to the relentless pressure of a never-ending to-do list. Now that I'm retired, the relentlessness has gone, but the overdue items on my Remanda app continue to keep building up. Your life is no different, probably even more demanding. You know, uh, last This past week, we've been looking after our Vijay's kids, as Vijay and Jen have been away in, in Kelowna, and so I've just become all, all the more aware of the additional to-do items that just piled up when you have children to look after. Uh, primary care issues, managing school calendars, education, homework responsibilities, and unbelievable social calendars as they keep growing as well. Uh, and every now and then, if a sickness should come along, then you know several more items are added to the to-do list. To added to that is the relentless pressure of work. Many of us work in situations that are bottom line driven where more and more is expected of us with less and less time, with the same degree of effectiveness as before, and we have to be accessible and available 24-7 to people. It's what one person called the tyranny of the urgent. And what suffers in the tyranny of the urgent is the important, especially relationships. Uh, we get angry, uh, irritated, if not angry, uh, when someone is delaying us at the checkout counter. Why are they taking time to talk? Right? We want the bank line to move a little bit faster than it does. And we move desperately, change lines. <laughs> Realize, not realizing the study that on average all lines move at the same pace. Very little time is left for significant relationships. Intimacy building conversations with people outside of us and then especially within our marriages and in our homes as well. Because we have a tyrant whispering to us in a year all the time, all this takes time, time is money, later, 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 and later never comes. And it's the same thing is true when it comes to the vertical dimension of our relationship. The Evangelical Alliance Church in North America did a survey recently about which Bible character people would identify with the most. These are Christians. I asked Shem out of that. She said David. And it's understandable because David is the person who wrote the Psalms. Every human emotion is expressed in there. You know who it was? It was Martha. This is what it says. And, and you read that text. Let me read it for you once again for those who may not know the story. We just had it read text. We'll read it again. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way, it's a different translation, to Jerusalem, they came to a village where a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was worrying over the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. 
But the Lord said to it, my dear Martha, you're so upset over all these things. There's really only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and I won't take it away from her. I'll come to Jesus' words a little bit later. But for now, the survey went on to summarize this by saying, Mary was Martha was selected almost three times more than her contemplative sister Mary, indicating that busy lifestyles are a widespread feature of contemporary discipleship. That's what the subject is all about. And busy lifestyles are a widespread feature of contemporary discipleship. So which leads me to the third message in this series that we're looking at. We're building with the, the approach that we've chosen is to look at some convictions which, if held deeper and deeper, will slowly move prayer from becoming just a belief to a value, and therefore will get practiced even more. And then we, that's a significant part, as Melissa explained to us, of apprenticing with Jesus, which is to become more and more like him. Three weeks ago, we began with the conviction that life is war. And we realized that this is the conviction that neutralizes the seductive power of a peacetime mentality that, leaves, that allows us to live inward-focused lives, largely unengaged in any significant way from Christ's cause and mission in the world. And then last week, we looked at the second conviction that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. This neutralizes the delusion of self-sufficiency that the Bible calls the arm of flesh of not putting confidence in the flesh. And today, I want to talk about the third conviction, which is that the eternal God is Lord of time who touches and transforms us in time. The eternal God is Lord of time and who touches and transforms us. And there is no other conviction that I know of that will help you overcome the tyranny of the urgent and move to the important thing. The, the, the foundation text for us is in Psalm 90. And the opening song today celebrated that. Lord, through all the generations you have been our home, before the mountains were created, before you made the earth and the world, you are God without beginning or end. For you, a thousand years are as yesterday. They're like a few hours. And a few verses later, 70 years are given to us. Some may even reach 80. I'm thankful for that, where I am right now. <laughs> but even the best of these years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we are gone. And then verse 12 says, teach us to make the most of our time so that we may grow in wisdom. The, the contrast in, this, in these verses is between a God who is eternal and you and I who are very much bound in time. Now, if God is eternal, it implies to us that he's outside of time as well. In fact, time itself was part of creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. We understand God making the heavens and the earth. That's kind of material stuff that we can see. We can't see time. You never think of time as something being created until Einstein came along and related matter, space, and energy and time together. And now we know that they're actually all created. Time itself was part of creation. We can't understand the time when there was no time, as it were. But God is eternal outside of time. Here's the implication. If God is outside of time, there is no past or future for God. They're all time-bound words, past and future. We were in the past, we will be in the future. We are now, God has only one time, and that time is an eternal, infinite, ever-present now. Which means hurry and time pressures are logical contradictions when you speak of God as the subject. God is outside of time, he cannot be time pressure. He sees all of time, he created all of it at one point. There's no question of his being outside of time as well. No question of him being rushed or hurried. So, in the face of the tyranny of the urgent, we have two fundamental choices. One is to get frenzied, even frantic, take matters into our own hands and accomplish more and more in less and less time and just continue to be even more enslaved by the tyranny of the urgent. Or we can regularly down tools and engage with this eternal God 
who can touch us in time and transform us so that we become increasingly free from the pressure of the tyranny of the urgent. Let's go back for a minute to the Mary and Martha story. Jesus seemed to be commending Mary very clearly. He said, he said she's chosen made the better thing, the one thing that is important. And at first sight, it seems completely unfair. After all, Jesus was invited. He was a guest in the home. In Middle Eastern culture, that meant a good meal was expected. Somebody had to do all the work. And it seems to be that Martha was doing all the work. Mary had just dumped all the responsibilities on her and decided to entertain Jesus or be entertained or whatever she was doing at Jesus' feet. So was Jesus really commending this kind of lack of sympathy and lack of work and lack of carelessness? Not, not really. That, that's what it looked like. And for a long time, I couldn't quite understand the difference between the two. I mean, I'm a contemplative myself, so I tend to go towards Mary. But there are others that I know who are Martha's, and it seems always seem very unfair to the Martha's, what Jesus said. Until I read something from Peter Schizero, a, a very, very busy pastor whose whole life was being destroyed by the tyranny of the urgent. His relationship with God, his relationship with his wife, his relationship with his children were all coming apart because of the tyranny of the urgent and some other issues that we'll also be looking at a few moments later. But he writes this, and he gave me this very valuable insight. He says, Martha's problems, however, go beyond her busyness. I suspect that if Martha were to sit at the feet of Jesus, she would still be distracted with everything on her mind. Her inner person is touchy, irritable, and anxious. On the other hand, I suspect that if Mary would help with many household chores, she would not be worried or upset as she does the work. Why? Her inner person has slowed down enough to focus on Jesus and to, the cent and to center her life on him. Our goal is to love God with our whole being, to be consistently conscious of God through our daily life, whether we are stopped like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, or attentively taking care of the tasks of life. That's the difference. That's what was the better thing. You see, when, when we sit in the presence of an eternal God, however block, much of block of time we take apart, two things are unchangeable. The to-do list doesn't get any smaller just by you sitting in God's presence. You still, those lists, are, nothing changes on my app after I've spent time in prayer. All the overdue items are still overdue. Actually, I have now less time in which to do them because I've chosen to give the time to God, right? So really, how does this thing work? Here's how it works. I get changed. That's the point. The to-do list remains unchanged. The time involved, time now available to do it is reduced, but the person who's going to enter into that world doing that work has changed. And that spills over into everything else that you do. That's how this whole thing works. That's why what Mary chose was the better thing for us to do. And what I want to do for the rest of this message is simply illustrate, mostly from my own life, because that's the only thing I can speak of with authenticity and a few others along the way that I've learned from watching other people, of how this can work, the various dimensions. I want to look at it in three different ways. They're not three discrete points. Think of it instead as three different spotlights that illuminate one particular thing. The spotlights overlap, but they also illuminate additional angles. So they're not three different things I'm going to talk about, but they're three different ways of kind of illuminating what is it actually happens within us that changes us so that we then go out into the busy world with less time and the same amount of work to do, but we are different people in that process. And hopefully those three convictions, those three amplifications taken together will then even more move prayer from a belief to a value so that we'll actually be praying and apprenticing under Jesus more. I want to tell the first one through a story. Gordon MacDonald in his book, uh, Restoring Your Spiritual Passion, tells one of my favorite stories about a Westerner who had gone to Africa for a safari. 
And so he had plans and agendas, and so he hired a group of uh, African natives to help him carry the stuff and help him because, like we all hire local guides, he needed local people to help him in this process. He couldn't do it himself. And he was really pleased. They were effective, efficient people, and so they made amazing progress the first day. And he got up the early the next morning, anticipating another full day with his agendas laid out before him, and he went outside, and to his utter surprise, he found all of his team sitting down on the ground, refusing to move. And when through an interpreter he inquired of the reason for this strange behavior, he was told by the Africans, we went so fast yesterday, we are waiting for our souls to catch up with our bodies. We went so fast yesterday, we are waiting for our souls to catch up with our bodies. It's one of the most, I think, incisive commentaries on the culture that we live in. And that's the first thing that I find happens in my life when I down tools and sit in God's presence. He feeds my soul when I sit in his presence so that my soul can actually catch up with my body. Probably the scripture verse, that portion of scripture that uniquely illustrates this dimension is Isaiah chapter 55, which I'll be coming back to several times during this message. It opens with these words, Come all you are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And here's the key question that I want to start on. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me and hear me that your soul may It's all about our souls being alive. Look at verse 2 in the middle. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Bread, bread is that which feeds us. Labor that satisfies us is fruitful labor, that something comes out of it, not wasted effort. Bread speaks to the being side of our lives, feeding us, and satisfying labor, fruitful labor, speaks to the doing side of it. So verse 2 is a picture of an individual who both at the level of being and becoming and at the level of doing has reached the end of themselves. They have spent everything, mostly time. And by the way, he speaks about money, but in our culture, time is far more important than money. As I've told you in other, in other settings years ago, you can borrow money, you can beg money, you can steal money, you can make money. You can't do any of those things with time. You can't go to someone and say, hey, can you give me one hour of your time today? So you have 23 and I have 25. This doesn't work that way. You can do it with money, you just cannot do it with time. The solution, though, is very clear on either side of it. Look, four times we are told to come and four times you're told to listen of various cognate words. So the issue is not hard work. Hard work never gets us imprisoned by the tyranny of the urgent. It's not that we're busy people. Everybody's busy. It's what we're busy with that makes all the difference. Hard work doesn't get us into this problem. It is working without regularly stopping to listen so eternity can touch time, so our souls can regularly be fed and catch up with our bodies. That's the central issue here. Isaiah ends this section by painting a picture of the results that will come when we do have our souls well fed like this. In verses 12 and 13 he says, You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. This is a beautiful picture. Remember this is poetry. It's a poetic way of saying that the joy that is in you will actually be contagious. You will go out with joy and everything around you is going to start clapping his hands. Exactly the opposite is true in that situation that we, in the opening story that I told you. Those, those locals that were helping this man on this uh, survey couldn't have experienced any joy at all in that being, being driven that far. 
So they just resigned. They just quit. It's true today too, right? Being around people who have agendas of their own and they're working relentlessly to get them accomplished is not much joy. It's not joy to be with someone like that on a vacation. And I've heard about situations like that because they have an agenda and everybody else has to follow that at the same time. It's not a joy to be like that around people who, who work over you that way. I remember one person when I was sharing some of these thoughts many years ago said, you're absolutely right. I work for a man like that and I have become like kind of a person. This is what happens. This is what happens. The exact opposite of contagious joy happens. And so we resign ourselves in those situations when we cannot escape. And we end up feeling used and discarded. Joy is the last thing that ever comes to our mind we think of it. But by contrast, but by contrast, he says, if you're the kind of person that stops regularly, then let your soul be fed by God. And let your soul catch up with your bodies. The people around you are going to notice it. The peace inside of you is going to become contagious, and not because you're preaching it. <laughs> I remember our first sabbatical, we went to Eugene Peterson, uh, was in Regent College at that time, so we took our first sabbatical there, and he very graciously allowed me to meet with him once a week, and we both took a couple of courses with him. And I just learned a lot of things about this man. You know, when you walk into his presence, you walk into, you want to walk into driven people, and everything's agitated in that space around him. This was the man, as soon as you got a little bit close enough, you felt like you were walking into an island of peace. <laughs> he told me once, he said, if I have a three o'clock appointment, I go, to sc I go to college at two o'clock. You know why? If anybody interrupts me, I don't have to be in a hurry to talk to them. <laughs> at the beginning of the semester, students had to sign up for appointments. The beginning, first week of class, his whole appointment for the semester was full. Across the street, another giant in the faith was teaching and if I named him, you would know who he was. There were only eight signatures at that time. Nothing wrong with him. It just shows there were people like this, they, their joy is contagious, which is the second side of it. You then become wanting to become like them, and so you see they are not only is there this contagious joy, there's transformation. The next verse, verse 13 says, instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of briars, the myrtle. Now, thorn bushes and briars are prickly and pokey, whereas pine trees and myrtles give out beautiful fragrance. You all remember pine fragrance, right? And so this is the picture of transformation. Not only the transformation in you, but as a result of that, the transformation in people that is around you. And some people are like that. Some people by nature, by a whole lot of other circumstances that they have had to endure, can sometimes, sometimes more than less, become prickly. But even they are touched transformation takes place in their lives. And it's not a temporary transformation by some kind of momentary motivation. It's an everlasting sign for the Lord's renown. It's the kind of transformation that will be enduring and that will give glory not to you, but will give glory to God. Because if they were transformed, it was because your soul was enriched and your soul was only enriched because you spent time in God's presence. So that's one of the things that I've found has regularly happened. Isaiah 55 continues to be a mainstay. It has been that way in my life since about the early 90s to, in my own continuing battle with uh, the tyranny of the urgent. And he has never failed. I have failed him many times, but he has never failed. A second thing that happens when eternity touches time is that he clarifies and affirms the central calling of my life. This is also very important when it comes to taming the tyranny of time because this has to do with an issue of identity. 
If we don't have a clear understanding of who we are and what we've been made to do, then there's anxiety over our identities. And our identities get tied to what we do. In which case we are desperately trying to do more and more of what will make us feel good about ourselves. We hope no mother in Bolton has an identity tied up in being the cutest, having the cutest baby. Because they're going to be in trouble in a little while. But much more seriously though. This happens. And secondly, because we take on all these things, if our calling is not clarified, we're doing things that we're not called to do, which is therefore usually not very effective. It's not satisfying. We spend our money on what is not bread, our labor and what doesn't satisfy. And we're not doing the thing that we're really supposed to do as well. This is how this thing taps into the issue of the tyranny of time. But when our calling is regularly clarified and affirmed, we are rescued from these errors. Our, our, we are affirmed in our identities of who we are and what we've been made to do. And that enables us to say no to a lot of things. Probably one of the most dramatic illustrations of this happened in 2017. April 2017, I was heading to uh, the UK uh, to do eight hours of lectures on spiritual disciplines to the Oxford Center of Christian Apologetics. And I experienced a real identity crisis on the plane, really, of that. Because, you know, these were the creme de la creme from all over the world. Many of them already had master's degrees. Some of them were working on PhDs and philosophy and other esoteric disciplines. And, and, and I was struggling, well, Lord, what do I have to say to these people that they haven't already heard? These guys are all far more, people are all brilliant, more brilliant than I am, the kind of careers that they're involved in. They'll, they know a lot more about the world. They're much younger than me. They're far more connected to what's happening. Anything I'm going to say is going to be irrelevant. So it was a bit of an identity and calling crisis. Well, my Bible reading for that day and happened to be in uh, John's Gospel. And for some of you who may not be familiar, before Jesus came, he, uh, God sent a forerunner named John the Baptist. And John announced the fact that Jesus was coming. And uh, he asked the people to get ready. He called them to repent, which simply means to change your mind. Change your mind about the kingdom and what you're going to do because somebody is coming that's going to rewrite the agenda for you. And so they sent a delegation to this guy and they said, hey, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> now, Somebody would ask you who you are. There's probably many things you can say. If someone asks me who I am, I can say, well, I'm, I, I was a pastor. I'm a retired pastor right now. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. Uh, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan, not doing very well this year. Uh, and all in all, I'm so-and-so. It's highly unlikely that any one of us here would start a question, answer a question, what are you, or who are you, with I am not. I mean, how strange would it be if you met me for the first time and asked me, what are you, who are you? And I'd say, well, I'm not a Raptors fan. Well, that's not true anymore. Uh, I'm not a carpenter. Really? This would frustrate the people, right? Listen, I asked you who you are. And the people that were listening to John the Baptist were completely frustrated and said, well, what do you have to say about yourself? You know what he said? That I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Now, if you understand the power of that metaphor, you'll wonder, really, that's encouraging to you, John? Because have you ever tried shouting in a wilderness, in a desert, in open spaces where there isn't even a surface to echo? The vastness of space swallows up your word. They seem so weak. You can shout and it's gone in an instant, right? Voices in the wilderness are about the weakest, most ineffective things that I can ever imagine. So why was, my, why was John so thrilled with that? And how would that be an encouragement to me? Let me tell you, because John was quoting again from Isaiah. And Isaiah, in the larger context of that, is 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the voice of one called to preach. And he said, as you preach into the wilderness of people's lives, God himself will build a highway into the wilderness of their lives and he will show up in his glory and he will transform that wilderness. Man, what an incredible calling. I said, oh, wow, that's what I'm called to do, you know? And all, all of a sudden, my whole attitude changed. I no longer felt uncomfortable. My identity was reaffirmed. I am a voice crying in the wilderness. That's what I am. I'm called to preach. It doesn't matter what these people are. It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter how much they know and how little I know compared to them. But when I preach and teach to them these spiritual disciplines for these eight hours over the next two days, Jesus will build a highway into the wilderness of their lives and he will show up and he will glorify them and they will go away satisfied. And that's it, what it's all about. Begin to get the picture of how this works. My identity and my calling was clarified that particular day. Now, there was still lots of work to do. Don't get me wrong. This isn't an excuse for doing nothing. There was eight hours of intense teaching. and There was preparation before that. There was review every day on it. But what it rescued me from was desperately trying to read more books, come up with more clever quotes at the end to somehow impress all these people. That was all gone. That's how it was. It doesn't mean you don't work. You just don't, you're no longer tyrannized by all these other things that you're supposed to do. No, you're not supposed to do that. You're a voice crying in the world. Now, that's my preaching. For you, it's not your preaching, but it's true for anything that you do. If your calling is affirmed, you have all these problems, and then you simply become a voice in the wilderness, giving people the gift of your presence that Melissa reminded us of. So that was the second way in which this works, has worked in my life. Basically, it was Isaiah 55 all over again, right? It's uh, listen that your soul may live. Just listen to what he has to say. That's why I said these spotlights are not all that different from one another. They keep illuminating the issue from different angles. Now, let's go back to Isaiah again. Third thing happens when eternity touches time. And that is his thoughts and his ways begin to influence mine. Not only is my calling affirmed and clarified, he actually engages with my thinking about my calling, sometimes replacing, sometimes correcting, sometimes modifying, sometimes increasing his thoughts. And the latter part, middle section of Isaiah talks about that. My thoughts are completely different from yours, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and your, higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The rain and the snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer, bread for the hungry. Notice exactly the same thing. Bread is what we eat. Seed is what we sow so that others can eat. So same as the problem with verse 2. Verse 2 was, why have you spent your money on what is not bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Here God says, if you will let me do this grand exchange in you, if you will let me exchange my thoughts and my ways for your thoughts and your ways, I'm going to give you both bread and seed, both fruitful labor. The whole problem the problem of verse 2 is completely solved. Because they cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer, bread for the hungry. It's the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want to do. In other words, God's promising. This is not a claim for preachers that every time they preach, God will do something, which is true, but it doesn't come from this verse. This one is a promise that if you will stop and down tools and listen in the midst of this to-do list that is facing you and say, in your face, tyranny of the urgent, I will do what I promise. I will, through my word, exchange my thoughts and my ways for your thoughts and your ways. This can happen large scale. It can happen small scale. Let me give you some illustrations. Probably the largest scale one was this September, 
See, Vijay actually asked me to do this series in February. He said, Dad, can you preach the first month and the last month that I'm away? The first month was a series on marriage, and the last month was on prayer. He said, and you've taught about prayer so often. That's true. I've thought about it, thought about it, practiced it for 40 years. So I said, yeah, that's it. No problem. That wouldn't be a lot of work, you know? So little did I know. So I just said, okay, I'll do that. Well, I didn't know at that time that come June, uh, I get a call from Rexdale. They're going through the process. This church went through a few years ago about... Uh, women in leadership and elders and stuff like that. And so they're having some teaching sessions. So I'm not teaching on that particular view, on, on the views and stuff, but basically how we to conduct ourselves in the midst of these things. So that's tonight, okay? So I'd be preparing for that as well. Then I discovered that later, I didn't know at that time in February when I said yes to Vijay that uh, I'm speaking next August in Slovenia. I thought, okay, that's a safe uh, uh, assignment to accomplish. Guess what? The organizer said, can we have all the framework of your sermons by when? I said, latest by September. All of a sudden, the September was beginning to loom large with this tyranny of things that have to be done, you know. All this extra stuff. But God was faithful again. The one thing I didn't do was to abandon my normal practice of being in His presence, and I regularly prayed through these kinds of images that these things would happen. And I'll tell you this, this phone that I have, I actually make far fewer calls on this phone than God makes to me on this phone. What do I mean by that? So as I'm walking and praying, doing my other stuff, and we'll be talking a little bit more about the actual nuts and bolts of that, how you engage with Scripture to hear God's Word, uh, I would just get these thoughts. This, this, this precise issue would happen. His thoughts and His ways would replace my thoughts or modify them or correct them or add to them. And they'd come out of nowhere. I might be praying about something else altogether. And all of a sudden, there's a thought that'll come. I'm going, oh, that'll, that'll really fit that message on prayer. So I would just simply dictate memos. For all these three things, all the things that I'm going to be doing in this series, all the stuff that I was going to do for tonight's talk, all the stuff that I was going to do for Slovenia. And then I set aside all of August, because it still was work to do. I set aside all of August to prepare this series. But I wasn't starting with a blank slate. To my absolute amazement, I found that I dictated since February to August 130 voice memos. I have enough, enough material there for eight to ten messages on this subject. So my challenge wasn't, what am I going to say? It's, what am I going to not say? You know? I have never preached this, even though I preached for 40 years, I've never preached this series of messages this way. It's the first time you're hearing it. Whether it's worthy or not, it's a different matter, but it's the first time you're hearing it. But it came out of this whole process, and I actually didn't spend any time studying for it. I spent a lot of time discerning, organizing, interacting with the worship teams, and all, all that kind of stuff. So, which produced this freshness that I would never otherwise have brought in. It would have been the same old stuff, and there's a lot of same old stuff in here too, if you've heard me for any length of time, but never put together in this way. Now, simultaneously with that, when the time came close, I had another series of 15, 20, or 25 memos for the Slovenia message. So within, in one afternoon, I was able to put together a whole outline, because this wasn't me coming up with the ideas. I just simply recorded what happened, what was the most number of things that God was speaking to me about, and whole outlines began to fall into place. And the same thing about tonight's talk. That I was asked in June. So from June to August, I kept doing the same thing. And I had about 25 or 30 memos there in my phone. Downloaded those, and the entire structure for tonight's talk came together. So he literally does this. And huge amounts of time that would have been wasted, and also accompanied with franticness because of what am I going to do? I never accept it. If I'd known, about, well, God doesn't tell us what's ahead for us, right? He wants us to obey at that particular moment. But he says, you come to me, and I'll conquer the tyranny of the urgent. Now, I've given you an illustration from my own uh, life, because that's where I find it most often. But I want to show you that it works in various other settings. Those of you who come, never come near uh, a pulpit to preach professionally. 
And we talk about those of you whose primary callings, or you may find your callings at this stage in your life, raising children, running a home, maintaining the kind of environment where godly sons and daughters are being raised, these spiritual champions. We looked at them last week, some of you, how meaningfully you are engaged in these life transitions in the lives of your children. Um, Again, when we were uh, at Rexdale, hospitality was a huge part of our ministry, and that's one of Sham's primary gifts. And Friday nights were often the time when we would have 10, 12, 14 people over for dinner. And so those were extra busy days for her, and uh, I would rearrange my time to come home a little bit earlier to kind of help with the dishes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and she, met, she shared this message with me after one of those evenings. Uh, she said, oh, well, I got up in the morning, and there, the, the to-do list was there, all, all these additional things. So she had just a real temptation to be like Martha and not like Mary, although naturally she's not like that. But just the night before in our small group, I'd actually walked them through some of these principles of a small group of eternity touching time. So she said, I decided to do that. I said, let the, let the to-do list wait. And I would just unhurriedly wait on God's presence at Jesus' feet. And she said, it was just amazing. She said, later on in the day, as I was ironing a tablecloth, she said, a whole different way popped into my head. Popped into my head is another way of saying my thoughts and my ways for your thoughts and your ways, if you're in his presence. And she said, I found a different way of doing it. And she finished the day 45 minutes ahead of time. This isn't magic. This is God honoring our callings. And if we dare to believe him, he said, my word will do what I promised to do. It It will exchange my thoughts and my ways for your thoughts. And you will prosper wherever I send you. Okay, now how about the business? I talk about preaching, I talk about home life, but the business one. I remember a young man who worked for a busy executive for a large automobile company. And he had a practiced habit of coming into God's presence. And uh, he would, in order to beat the traffic and create some space for him, because a family with young children, and he did this with his wife's blessing, he would basically leave an hour or so earlier than he would need to to get to work, which helped him beat the traffic, get to his work, and there he would sit in God's presence. But even anticipating that, he said, Sundar, one of the things God began to speak to me was as a result of all the stuff I was reading, was in the shower. Now, every day I would ask God, what does he have for me regarding my work today? And he began sharing these thoughts and implementing them at work. And can you imagine the freedom from the tyranny of the urgent, not only for himself, but this contagious joy and peace that was flooding over, so much so that it got to the point where every morning when he walked into work, pretty well every one of the guys who worked for him or the gals who worked for him and none of them, as far as I know, believers, they said, what did God say in the shower today to you? This is going out with joy and being led forth in peace and thorn bushes and briars being transformed because he was courageous enough to say, I will down tools and sit in God's presence. So whether it's in preaching, whether it's in cooking a meal at home, whether it's managing a ruthless agenda at work, it's still the same. His thoughts and his ways can influence my thoughts and my ways. The invitation is the same. Become like Mary. Choose the better thing because it will not be taken from her. Now I understand what that meant. It will not be taken from her. It will carry over into everything else that you're going to do. So nothing to do with whether you're wired like a Mary or wired like a Martha. Both of us desperately need to sit to let eternity touch time and transform us and it will not be taken from us the rest of the day, the rest of the week, the rest of the month, the rest of the year and the rest of our lives. Now, I want to pull this whole thing together by telling you another story that happened to me, which some of you have heard before. In 1982, I'd been a pastor for about a couple of years at that time, and uh, I got an invitation to speak at a church in Calgary. So 
But they did it as a ministry to pastors as well. You get to speak on two Sundays at either end of the week. That's the only responsibility. They give you a house to stay in, a car, tickets to the Calgary Stampede. And so we'd never been there. So my wife invited, we decided to invite her sister and uh, her husband. And we were very close. And so the four of us went for a vacation. And one of those days, or two days, was a trip to Jasper. We'd never been to Jasper. And so you'd driven that Icefields Parkway from Banff to Jasper. It's spectacular. I've never seen the Rockies. I grew up far away from mountains, oceans, nothing like that. I'd never seen anything like the Rockies. So anyway, we, uh, it was summertime, so it was night, sunlight till 11 o'clock in Jasper. So we booked a hotel there and paid for our credit card, so it was all guaranteed. So now, I think we've driven, it's about a four and a half hour trip. We drive fairly steadily without having to break any speed limits. But it took us 11 hours. Well, the reason it took us 11 hours was every new turn in the road, I was confronted with majesty like I'd never seen before. They demanded that you just stop, and we did. And then along the way, Malin Canyon, oh, every canyon had to be explored. And so we did. So it took 11 hours to get there, all right? That was fine, no problem at all. And then the next morning, I was anticipating another similar spectacular drive back. Well, plans changed because Sham and her sister wanted to do some shopping. And so we didn't leave till 1.30. And now I had a 5.30 appointment in Calgary. But instead of having 11 hours to get back to that, I only have four hours, which means you don't stop anywhere. Every single turn in the road that revealed another majestic view was now an irritation because it meant I was further away from my appointment. And I finally explored it onto the flatlands of Calgary. I was happy because now I knew I could make my appointment. I didn't think much of it at that time. But months later, I was in my study one day. God said to me this. He said, were those mountains any less spectacular on the way back? Were those canyons any less worthy of leisurely exploration on the way back? Of course not. He said the only difference was you had all the time on the way up. You had no time on the way back. This is what hurry will do. Hurry, and I wrote this sentence, hurry can turn eye-popping, soul-enlarging beauty into an irritating, soul-shrinking nuisance. Can you imagine anything more tragic than that? Hurry can take eye-popping, soul-enlarging beauty and turn it into an irritating, soul-shrinking nuisance. Today we've seen some of that soul-enlarging beauty. When eternity touches time, here are the three spotlights we looked at. He feeds our souls so it can catch up with our bodies. He clarifies and affirms the central calling of our life and his thoughts and his ways influence mine. Now, he asked me, what can take this treasure and turn it into an irritant? Hurry will do. That's how serious and significant this problem is. That's why it's so important to learn to apprentice unto Jesus, to sit at Jesus' feet, because he can teach us. Remember, all through this we're learning. An apprentice, we apprentice under a mentor who's far, far better, in this case, infinitely so. And I've been reminding you of that each time because that's what the series is all about. Right at the very beginning of my ministry, I took a course at uh, Tyndale. It was actually a one-day pastor's seminar. Howard Hendricks, who's one of the greatest teachers in Dallas Theological Seminary, he said this, Jesus was always busy but never in a hurry. Jesus was always busy but never in a hurry. And that's what he wanted to do. This is not a cure for, this is not a prescription for laziness. This is learning to be busy without ever being in a hurry. And only one person lived it perfectly. Only one person on the way to the cross, in the midst of a people that were shouting, heard the voice of two blind people. Son of mercy, Jesus, have mercy on me. And he stopped when everybody else said, come on, don't you see he's got big things to do? He's going to Jerusalem. They didn't know what was going to happen there. They, they thought something big was happening. They just didn't know what was going to make it big. But he said, no, I'll wait and I'll stop. And I'll... He was busy. 
So, what do you need to do with this? Each week I'm trying to give you something, and it's nothing new. First of all, I want you to start, because one of the, because some of you may say, look, I understand now, I'm becoming more and more deeply committed to these three convictions. I'm beginning to believe that life is war. I'm beginning to believe that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. I'm beginning to believe now, and I hope to deepen my belief, that the eternal God can touch and transform time. But here I run into, when, when I get there, when these convictions get me to prayer, I run into another problem. It's the problem with words. I don't know what to say. After a little while, I'm either repeating the problem back to God or working through boring prayer lists or I get silent. And then my silent mind starts wandering all over the place. What do I do with that? Well, that's next week's message. That's going to sum up the whole thing. We're going to talk about that. How do you bring delight into this discipline of prayer? But in this case, I actually want you to start doing something to prepare yourself. I'd like you to try, if possible, to carve out, because as a step of faith, three spotlights, I would like you to carve out three 40-minute blocks. That's all, three 40-minute blocks during this week. Go back tonight before anything else fills the calendar, put the big rocks in place first. And here's what I'd like you to do. Listen to these three sermons together, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, and today's sermon. And as you do, be sure that you can pause. If at any moment you find the Spirit saying something to you, hit the stop button on whatever device you're using and talk back to Him. Whatever you feel like saying. You want to complain, complain to Him. You want to pour out your heart, pour out your heart to Him. If you want to just protest your helplessness, good, that was last week's message, right? That'll get you praying, just protesting our helplessness. That's okay too. He wants to get us in that place. Not a couple of those moments this week. More than, more than a couple of moments, as a matter of fact. So however, and then if He doesn't say anything, hit the start button go through it again. So you're going to take, it's not just hey, 40 minutes on the car somewhere driving, although that's better than nothing. But my suggestion is, listen, because you're actually getting ready for what I'm going to be talking to you next week. Letting him speak first so we can speak back to him. So kill two or three birds with one stone, three 40-minute blocks, listen, stop, and if the 40 minutes is over and you only worked your way through one-third of the sermon, who cares? <laughs> the sermon doesn't have a need to be listened to. You have a need to interact with God. If he says one thing to you that keeps you transfixed for 40 minutes, well, you're further ahead than I would ever imagine possible. Okay, so I just really encourage you to do that. Secondly, come back next Sunday morning for the final message. And the more you've done this first one, the more your heart will be primed. And thirdly, don't forget, next Sunday evening, this is what I've been reminding you every week, hopefully you've marked it down, you're protecting it, it's still protected. If you haven't marked it down, mark it down next Sunday night, 7.30 at TDCH, we'll gather together to actually put some of this corporate dimensions of prayer to practice. Let's pray together.